Welcome to Kudet, the podcast for self-defense and martial arts news, interviews, techniques, and history. Hosted by Shihan Jeffrey Miller and Shidoshi Eric White. Shihan Miller is a 13th degree black belt and master instructor of Warrior Concepts International in Sudbury, Pennsylvania. Shidoshi Miller's martial arts career spans over 30 years and has taken him around the world to train with some of the world's best martial arts masters. Shidoshi Eric White has been a student of Shihan Miller's for over a decade. Together, they will answer your questions, discuss techniques, history, and current issues important to you, the self-defense-minded citizen and the practicing martial artist. Submit your questions by email to warriorc at warrior-concepts-online.com. Well, happy Friday, everyone. It is great to have you with us here on the uh, next episode. I guess this is the 19th uh, episode of Kuden, but uh, this is the official second go around for us for the the live show that you can join in on. So uh, great to have you with us uh, today, sir. And of course, if you're checking out the show, we're bi-coastal. I'm in California and Mr. Miller is all the way over in Pennsylvania, but through the magic of the internet, we can get on together and do this show live and take your questions. And I don't know about you, sir, but I'm really pumped up because it's Friday and it's Memorial Day weekend. And so uh, yeah, I've got a lot of go. energy today. <laughs> yeah, my daughter's in for the weekend, so uh, I think we're going to take in the Pirates of the Caribbean uh, movie that opens up, uh, I think, tomorrow, maybe, tonight? Yeah. I don't know. Uh, Excellent. We'll, we'll, we'll be going tomorrow, so yeah, you know, daddy-daughter bonding time, you know. Yeah, well, you'll have to let me know how it is. I love the series of Pirates movies. Nope. Nope. Not telling you. <laughs> <I'm> not gonna... <laughs> how do you keep an idiot in suspense? I'll tell you later. Uh, <laughs> see, that's that's one of those school-age Boy, anyway, so all right, yeah, yeah, it's good. So uh, yeah, I'm excited, absolutely. Uh, kind of uh, bummed with kind of you know some of the crap that's going on in the world, but yeah, um, it is what it is, right? And it's one of the reasons why we train. Um, well, it's why we train, right? There's lots of people that train just because they enjoy martial arts or whatever, and that's fine. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's one of the reasons why I train because there are stupid people out there doing stupid things or very yeah. smart people doing stupid things, which is even more dangerous, right? It's uh, stupid people doing dumb things that can get in your way. But when it's smart people doing dangerous things, uh, then, you know, the plan has been well thought out. and You're going to have to be at the top of your game if you're going to, you know, deal with it. Yeah. And that's kind of what brings us into the first kind of segment to to talk about on today's show uh, is that, uh, what you're referencing is uh, the recent terror attack that took place in Manchester, and this was at a pop concert. Uh, Ariana Grande, a, a big pop star, has a lot of young female fans, you know, one of these Disney artists, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, the unthinkable happens. A, a suicide bomber blows himself up, not inside the show, uh, but as people are exiting. You know, so many people, oh, there's security at shows. Why did this? How could this happen? Well, they plan this out that, oh, well, we don't have to go through security. We'll just wait till everybody comes out and stand in the crowd of people flooding out. So, you know, really interested to hear from you, sir, about, you know, how people can be prepared for the unthinkable. Well, see, and you've you've used that term twice, the unthinkable. And the first thing is to stop thinking that way, because Mm. um, as atrocious as it was, um, and I certainly don't mean this in, in any bad way, right? But um, I've actually been waiting for something like this to happen. Um, not wanting it to happen. Don't, don't confuse the two, right? 
but um, you know what better places than sporting events or ginormous political rallies or uh, you know these concerts, you know tourists at the beach, all kinds of things, right? And if you look back over the last couple of years, different places around the world where you know lone gunmen have walked out into a tourist beach and, and opened fire, and, and just things that again it's that quote unquote unthinkable kind of thing. Um, but if you're doing your due diligence and you're being vigilant, then, um, you know, it's, it's not unthinkable, right? And one of the things, one of the first things that people should think about is, you know, where do they go and what do they do? And, you know, what if something occurred there, right? So, uh, and, you know, again, never discount that things can happen anywhere, Right. I mean, San Bernardino, uh, when, you know, a, a Christmas party was lit up. Right. I mean, that was yeah. it's a Christmas party, for God's sake. Right. So uh, the smallest of offices, the largest of arenas. Right. Um, we don't discount anything. So uh, but again, this is not about being paranoid. It's about being prepared. Right. And there is a huge difference. Okay? Um Although they do say that uh, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're out that they're not out to get you. But. You know, paranoia typically is fearing that somebody's out to get you when there is no danger. Um, and we don't want to be hyper vigilant where you're like a, you're like a, I don't know, a wild animal, like a prey uh, type animal that's always looking uh, for the yeah. attack, right? So we're not that either, right? But at the same time, uh, you know, just knowing. So, uh, and here's an example, right? And I've used this before, but. Uh, a couple of years ago, well, a bunch of years ago now, um, uh, I was in an accident where my vehicle actually left the roadway and went down one of these mountain cliffs. I mean, like, straight down mountain cliffs kind of thing. Um, you live in Pennsylvania. You know how yeah. mountains and things like that we have. And, you know, they're certainly not the Rockies. However, um, there's, the elevation is constantly changing, right? So, um and I went over one of these things, right? Uh, the difference between me and a lot of people is I had an escape plan to get out of my vehicle should I have not been rendered unconscious or dead, right? And uh, this was one of those scenarios that for years I had been going over in my head. And it wasn't a daily thing or whatever. I mean, in the beginning, I, you know, kind of worked worked out a solution and thought it through and kind of, uh, you know, validated things with other information and statistics and things like that, and then just kind of created this thing and then went over it in my head so that when this accident occurred and my vehicle finally came to a stop, um, in a, it was actually in a pretty precarious position, um, and I, I could just, I, I could carry out this plan, right? I didn't have to make it up on the fly while in shock or, you know, anything like that. So, uh, but what, what it was is just kind of a mental visualization thing, and it was a prior planning. So, you know, the, the thing is, the, the recognition was there are certain things that I can't physically defend against. Okay, so regardless of my prior bodyguard training and military police training and, and other things, you know, uh, defensive driving and, and, and all that, right, there's a recognition that, or there's always been a recognition for me that, at some point, my skills may fail. Okay? I could be on a slippery highway and lose control of the vehicle. I could be, you know, suddenly confronted with somebody veering across a lane of traffic 
and there's nowhere for me to go kind of thing, right? So at that moment, what do I do? At the moment I realize there is no escaping this, what do I do? Right? So uh, my initial plan was to uh, borrow the lesson from drunk drivers, okay? And it wasn't about not drinking and driving, right? It was about the fact that, because I'm an ex-police officer, right, I've done traffic accident investigations and I've been to scenes where people were dead or disfigured or whatever, right? And the one thing that I learned, and this bore out through research, was that more often than not, the sloppy fall-down drunk walks away from the accident with minimal injuries, if any at all, while the other person in the other car who was stone sober, right, is broken, crippled, or dead, right? And so here's this thing, right? So how does this occur and why does this occur, right? Well, there's a panic response in the stone sober guy that causes them to stiffen up and panic, right? So the adrenal system kicks in and they, they stiffen up. And even when the vehicle itself isn't completely totaled and that would have killed them anyway, the stiffening up actually contributes to their, to their injuries, right? Mm. Because everything's locked in place and your half ton to one ton vehicle is running into another half ton to one ton vehicle and you're both traveling at a certain speed and physics tells us that, you know, now the force is just, I mean, it's horrendous, right? Uh, when I was stationed in Germany uh, as a military policeman, on German television, they had safety commercials. I don't know if they still do today, but they had these driver safety commercials. And uh, things were like, you know, at, at what speed should you take a turn, uh, those kind of things, right? And they literally showed, at, you know, if you're going so, so much over what the designated speed was on an exit ramp or something like that, inertia will just grab your vehicle and yank it off the roadway. Right? Mm-hmm. Same thing with uh, uh, putting your child in a, in a safety seat, and uh, you know because there there were there was a, there was a time when mom would sit there in the passenger seat, and baby would be in her arms, or the child would be sitting on her lap, and they would put the seatbelt over themselves and the child, right? Or they would just hold on to them, figuring that you know they're just going to hold the baby back. And one of these commercials in Germany uh, was about uh, the fact that. Uh, at something like 50 or 55 miles an hour, on a head-on collision, the baby's body leaves the mother with the same force of a 357 Magnum bullet leaving a gun. So wow. there is no holding it back. Yeah, so, you yeah. know, things like that, right? And yeah. then the opposite was true about the drunk, where the drunk is just, they're super, super relaxed. So they, they're just, their body is just capable of receiving more, mm-hmm. right? So what I did was I worked into my plan that at the moment that um, I realized there was nothing else to do, I would simply ride it out and relax as much as possible um, and try to be vigilant in that moment uh, for anything, you know, flying through the windshield or whatever, you know. So that's what I did, right, and that's what I did to ride things off. So that's that's really what people need to do. One, One is the first step is just recognize that, You know, if you go to football games, and even if it's a high school football game, right, or you could be coming out of a school after your kids play or, you know, a band concert or whatever. I mean, this was a perfect example where they're circumventing security and just, you know, they they don't have to worry about security because the plan is 
we don't need to be inside the stadium, right? Yeah. So it's the same thing, right? So, uh, you know, recognize that these, these places exist and you could find yourself in one of these. The next thing to recognize is that, you know, it, you may not survive because you just may be where the, the, the thing occurs, right? So you may be uh, killed instantly. You may be uh, maimed to the degree where you just can't move, right, or you're unconscious, right? But so we're, we're assuming that you have some kind of capacity, right? Yeah. So – the, the the first thing is in is in, in, I'm just going down our our eight phases of, of uh, self defense strategy right so we've got general awareness recognizing that it can happen to us what kind of things might happen where we might be next one is situational awareness so you get your bearings right um, you really need to recognize where you are what's going on uh, where you know the shooters may be where the blast may be the fact that there may be another blast right. And uh, uh, just recognize where you are, okay? That would be a good idea if you could do some forethought, just like uh, uh, bodyguards do when they're going into an area with a principal. Uh, everybody thinks these guys just surround somebody and this person can just walk wherever they want and security is just kind of in tow uh, watching for things to happen. But the reality is that there have been days or weeks of prior planning, knowing where primary and secondary escape routes will be, knowing the lay of the land and what the room or the highway or whatever is supposed to be like, um, everything, right? So uh, last-minute changes of plan, right? And that's why a lot of these uh, principals, these uh, rich folks or celebrities or whatever, uh, as much as they don't like it, their schedules are planned out weeks or months in advance so that security can do their job, okay? So, you know, where are you going to be, right? Um, with today's technology, you know, my wife and I, we, we're huge fans of Billy Joel, right? And she likes other things, too. But when we when we buy tickets to go to a show, right, not only do we go online to look at the stadium, because you can. I mean, we've been to, uh, uh, not Radio City Music Hall, um, it's over there in New York. Madison Square Garden? Madison Square Garden, yeah, absolutely, been there. So, you know, we can go online when we're purchasing the tickets, to look at the seating, and people right. tend to do that, or they'll go online to look at the airplane to choose their seating or whatever, right? Yeah. And so they're doing that, but you can also use that same information for recognizing where the emergency exits are, uh, where you are relative to how many other people, right? Recognizing that human beings stampede when they panic, just like everybody else, right? So being able to get your bearings and not get trampled over by all these people that didn't have any forethought and aren't clear of mind and are just running away. They don't know where they're running away to. They just know that they're running away from the spot they're in, right? And yeah. so there's there's really no rhyme or reason to what they're doing other than panic, right? So we have to be able to be clear-headed in moments like that as well, right? So, But just doing some some prior planning, knowing – you know, where you're going to be entering, uh, where you're going to be exiting, that kind of thing. So you have your bearings, and then where do you go from there, right? So in a situation where there's, uh, you know, live fire or there's uh, ex- poss- the possibility of explosions and things like that, right, um, uh, we want to recognize where there are safe areas, right? If I can identify where the, 
where the gunfire is coming from, then I want to be able to, again, with forethought, that would be great because I, I know where I am relative to structural uh, things that could provide uh, cover against incoming fire or um, at least some shielding against uh, uh, blast, you know, those kind of things, right? So if there are pillars or it's a, it's a really, really big building kind of thing, right? Uh, knowing to stay away from windows, uh, that kind of thing, right? Um, but just just prior planning and being able to, if possible, have something like that mapped out in your head, like my, my accident, right? I uh, hit yeah. ice and left the roadway, and there was, there was a point where when the vehicle was leaving the roadway, I'd used all of my skills to bring that vehicle back under control, and there was a point where the rear, right rear tire, I can still feel it, the right rear tire, um, actually the front left front tire left the roadway, and of course I couldn't see that part, but I knew when it left because I could feel the right rear come up off the ground. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, that was my signal. There was nothing left for me to do but ride this out. So, um, but having some kind of a plan of, you know, where I will go, but I, I have to know where I am, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, there was a class that I had done a, a long time ago for. Uh, my online guys, and one of the things that we were talking about was the kudai dori, right, that spatial relationship, right, when you're in places or when you're moving around relative to your attacker, that kind of thing. And uh, one way to practice it would be when you're you're in a busy place, right, you're, you're at the mall during a holiday or uh, wherever, you're at one of these concerts or football games, and you're in a group of people, um, you know, as long as you're not, you don't have your family in tow and you can just do this on your own, then one of my favorite little things to practice is to ride the eddies or the, the waves and the gaps that open and close through this group of people. To get from point A to point B, what I want to do is I want to feel these things opening and closing and all that so I can literally just navigate and shift in between these things, right? Um, one, it helps your hand-to-hand combat stuff because you get a better sense of feel and where space is and where, uh, you know, where where space is opening, where it's closing, that kind of thing. You can do the same thing when you're moving through a crowd because when people are panicking, right, they're still moving while they're, while they're all moving independently, there's still this dynamic movement going on. Spaces are opening, closing, that kind of thing. And uh, if you can recognize that, then you can move through it, right? You can get to uh, you can get to a, a, a base of cover much more quickly, that kind of thing, right? Um, and that would be that would be a primary uh, objective, which would be to get out of that flow that's carrying you along, because you can't do anything proactive if you're being swept up in the current, and that could be a raging river or it could be a river of people, just moving right yeah so um yeah so these are just some basic things i mean you're, you're not you're not using taijutsu against an explosion right you're not using taijutsu against gunfire you know you can recognize things like okay dropping to the ground as quickly as possible fantastic okay or getting behind cover and being able to flatten your body out so that you're just harder to hit kind of thing right those all matter right but unless you're right there Right. But even if you are, you're right there and there's multiple gunmen and you're right there with a gunman. Right. And, you know, you've got to be quick. Right. To take this thing away. But even if you do. Right. Remember, depending on the the, the assailants. Right. 
they could be just waiting to get to uh, those 72 virgins or whatever, right? So who's to say that once you disarm this guy and even slightly incapacitate him, right, the other guys just don't turn and light up the whole scene with you and him because he's already committed to, you know, going to visit his maker, right? Yeah. Um, so you know, the big thing would just be to, to, you know, get yourself out, right? Uh, one of the most enlightened things a teacher ever said to me, and it was actually in the context of balancing between our self-defense and combat stuff and our personal development slash spiritual training was, uh, you know, the justification for the training, the, the, the martial training, was to keep you in the world, right? And the justification for the enlightenment training was to be able to do good in the world. So to balance those two things out, is the is the lesson that you can't do good in the world if you're not in the world, right? You have to be in the world to do good in the world. So um, same thing, right? Um, you know, your first priority is to whatever, you know, whoever looks for you to make sure that they're safe in the world. If they're with you, then, you know, you're going to have to work that into your plans as well, right? What if, what if I have my wife and child with me? What if I have... You know, uh, some friends with me, what, whatever. You know, if I'm by myself, that's different. But even if I'm by myself, right, um, if I have family and friends and all that, they look for me to be there. Okay? So, uh, one, I'm not a big fan of, of the, uh, the philosophy or psychology that a lot of these guys have where they're just very cavalier about things, you know. Well, you know. I'd rather, uh, I'd rather uh, die, go down fighting than to, uh, uh, you know, just blindly surrender or whatever. Okay, great. However, there are people in your life that your decision is going to affect, right? So if you're saving other people, great, right? But you can't save everybody if, if you're dead, right? And then the other thing was the, um, I don't know, this... It's not cavalier. It's I, don't know, this, I think it's a false sense of bravado, where they'd rather be uh, tried by twelve than carried by six. But either way, right? This person's not dead. But at the same time, they made some flaws. And, and I usually talk about this where you're taking on bad guys or whatever, right? And so you, now you're running the risk of ending up going to prison for overstepping bounds, yeah. and now you can't protect your family from there either, right? So. You know, there's more to that, more to it than just jumping in there and doing things. Right? So, uh, this is one of those things where I'm a big fan of escaping to safety, right? Um, especially when the attackers um, are already dead; they've already blown themselves up, or you know, even in, uh, you know, I consult with um, with corporations on workplace violence, and uh, you know, by and large, most of these companies that actually have plans in place. They're heavy on prevention and they're heavy on uh, discipline and, uh, you know, reporting and all that on the tail end, but little to nothing in the middle that would actually justify or that would be the, the operative term in a workplace violence policy or workplace violence training, and that's violence, right? They don't have anything in place for that. So uh, some people are just kind of, you know, left high and dry, right? But... Um, Kind of got off track there, and I apologize. Uh, where was I before that whole workplace violence stuff? 
Well, just kind of running down, you know, those those eight phases of self-defense you often talk about and, and really how, you know, that applies perfectly to this situation of, of having a knowledge of those things. Right. I mean, I, I understand if you're in a position, uh, you're a you're a medical professional and you're, you're you have to, you know, care for this person. Right. Uh, who may be acting out or you're trying to treat uh, a child when mom or dad are clawing at you because, you know, you're not doing it right. You're not doing it fast enough or whatever. Right. So you may have to be there. Uh, you're the police officer or the paramedic or whatever. Right. So you have to do that. Right? So if you're in that position or the gun's right in your face and you have to act, I get that, right? Yeah. But when when it's not that kind of a situation, right, we don't have to be Superman or Wonder Woman or whatever rushing in to save the day uh, because ultimately there are other people that depend on you uh, to be around. Oh, that's what, where I was going with this. Yeah. Um, that That's where... That's where the whole ninja mindset is is very different, often from the soldier or the typical fighter warrior mentality. Where uh, you know this is what I trained for, so here I am, right? Um, where the whole the, the ninja thing is to you're you're supposed to be a protector, right? And you have these people that you've chosen to protect and be around for. So being cavalier about things is just it it, it doesn't compute. Right. Yeah. Because being cavalier about it is being foolhardy or being, um, you know, uh, having that false sense of bravado or whatever. It's just it sounds real good. And, it, you know, and it may be even heroic in the moment. But um, I don't know, from my perspective, I'd rather be um, the guy who got home that didn't get interviewed or in the newspaper or whatever. Right. So that I could make sure that my family was OK or I grab my wife and kids and tip them into a position of unbalance so I could control where they're going and get them out of there, then be the guy who's posthumously awarded, you know, a hero's medal or uh, a memorial service or whatever because, uh, you know, they acted, but they also died. You know? Yeah. So, um, you know, and I'm on the fence about other situations. I'm not really on the fence. I'd probably do the same thing. But, uh, you know, was it uh, some time ago where that uh, guy came into the movie theater, right, and um, shot up the place. And there were a bunch yeah. of guys that uh, threw women on the floor, women and children on the floor, and um, just co- just threw their bodies over them to cover them to protect them. So they died, and, you know, these other people lived. And I, and I get that, okay? I mean, it's a decision you make in the moment, mm-hmm. right? Um but you know, a lot of folks they they have this. You you've heard it, right? Where they have these little bravado statements about how they're going to do this or that or whatever. When uh, you know, it's, it's just not the same. But if we're talking about a catastrophic in, incident like Manchester or things like that, then you know, you, you. I think the best thing that people can do beyond recognizing that this can happen to you, okay, or it can happen somewhere where you are, right? The next thing is in pre-planning what you will do should you find yourself in a situation like that. But that piece also includes, you know, being a little bit, doing a little bit more due diligence and knowing a little bit more about where you are, you know, uh, yeah. so that you can so you can navigate and get, and get out. Okay? 
Um, and certainly don't just – I think the people that panic the most are the ones that are least prepared. And you don't want to be that person that has spent all this time, effort, and in a lot of cases money, right, learning all this stuff and developing these skills and then just panic and wetting yourself just like everyone else because, you know, you're just not – you're just not prepared, right? So that's my take. How about that? <laughs> that's a great take. And, you know, I, I, I see kind of, you know, what you're talking about, you know, with, with – you know, having, having also that, uh, understanding in yourself too, as, as to, to who you are, you know, really looking to protect and help in the world and, and always kind of have that mindset of starting from there. Um, you know, a personal kind of thing for me recently in this area of the country here in California, and this made national news, so you may have heard of this, uh, months back through the winter, heavy rains here in California caused uh, an issue with one of our reservoirs that, you know, I kind of live yes. downstream of this Lake Oroville and this reservoir that was threatening to have its part of its spillway collapse. And so they were talking about catastrophic, unheard of kind of flooding. And uh, there was an evacuation that took place. About 200,000 people evacuated their homes in this greater area. And, right. you know, one of those things where you, you make decisions that are if you have the heart of, of who you're protecting and, and that is kind of your main core, uh, you know, with my family, uh, I made the very unpopular decision to make them come with me. Uh, my obligations to the radio station brought me to the radio station, but knowing that they would not know, uh, you know, quite where to go or had the capacity to, uh, I won't get into those reasons, but, I made sure they came with me as much as, you know, that was an unpopular thing. And for them, they didn't want to. With the, within the family? Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. No. And they, you know, they, they were put into a place of discomfort. You know, I had them kind of just basically sleeping on the floor of my office here at the station, but they were with me so I could help them and keep them protected as opposed to leave them behind, not knowing where they would go. And so, you know, those kinds of things, much like what you're talking about, personal experience of that, that I have always kind of kept that as a pre-planned thing that they come with me so I can continue to protect them in that given situation. So. Sure. Absolutely. Um, you know, and that, and that begets the, the question, how many people, uh, who train and who know personally the, the reason for it and, and the, the problems, right. And, and what it is that they're, they're training to protect themselves and their loved ones from, but we'll cave to, you know, the whining or the complaining or the, you know, some people making fun of or whatever. You know, I've, I've, I've been, you know, you know, I've been married a couple of times, right? So my wife now, um, she feels very, very protected, and she also likes it when I pull out a chair and I say, you sit here, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Other people have heard me say that, and they've, you know, kind of caught her up, you know, uh, you know, in a, in a little side conversation, and See bossy like that all the time. Say, what, do you mean? what do you mean bossy like that? We, he told you where you were going to sit. And she said, no, you see, you don't understand. Right? One, he's being a gentleman. Right? Two, he's looking out for my safety. So I learned very early on that he wasn't being bossy while being directing. Right? Yeah. So he needs to be in a position where he can act first. And he can do what he needs to do. And so he's putting me in the safest place he can think of 
in this in this uh, situation. Right. But I've been with other people who, you know, they'll look at me and go, you know what, you're not in care and terrorist operations anymore. You're not you're not in law enforcement anymore. You know, you can stop being paranoid. Well, you know mm-hmm. what, I may be the only person in this entire establishment right now that has training to this level. So if I don't, who will? And since right. I don't know anybody else here, I mean, I can look around the room and see, okay, that guy might be able to handle himself. And um, that guy looks like he's, kept, you know, packing over there. But I don't know what the extent of their training is or the extent of their awareness in the moment. So if I don't, who will, Right. And I am responsible for her safety, the safety of my children, and to some extent, the safety of my friends while we're out, right? And while I can't watch for everything all the time, I can still take those actions. So it has not bothered me one iota when jokes have come in my direction about me being paranoid or people laughing things off or whatever. It doesn't deter me from what what I'm doing and, and why I do what I'm doing. Okay, you can be upset at me, you can make fun of me, you can do whatever you want, but should something occur, you know, let's see if you're laughing after the fact because you're not going to be safer with anybody else. So while that may not be true if we were out with a bunch of friends that were all trained as well, I recognize that some folks have more training than I do and all that, in which case, you know, I'm I'm going to be backup. But, you know, um, the... The point here is that a lot of folks get deterred or they do all this, they spend all this time, effort, and, and resources and whatnot training and, and getting the situation taken care of or, you know, working to be prepared. And then at the first hint of hesitancy, complaining, uh, you know, uh, jesting, whatever, uh, they acquiesce. They, they back off. Because it's more important to them to not rock the boat among their friends and family and to not have people upset at them than it is for them to be the guy or be the girl who has the training and will do what they need to to ensure everyone's safety or to do the best they can at ensuring everyone's safety because nothing's guaranteed, right? Yeah. Um, Yeah, so I, I applaud you for, you know, they didn't have to like it. But on some level, they had to have trusted you because, you know, you didn't handcuff them and take them to your office. So they got in the car and they went with you. They didn't have to like it, right? But on some level, there's trust that husband and dad were doing this for the right reasons, right? people, People can complain afterwards. You know, we did all this and nothing happened. And it was inconvenient. And, well, okay, better inconvenient than incapacitating. How about that? Right. So, exactly. you know, and what did it cost you? Nothing. Because you still had TV. You know, he still had Internet. You know, whatever, right? So you didn't sleep in your own bed. But, okay, let's. we can either write this off as an adventure or we can, you know, let it go, whatever. But just like uh, a, a female police officer that I know about, I think, she, I think it was in Texas, um, she trained, she always carried her weapon uh, when she was off duty, so she always did concealed carry. And um, you might know this story. She was out with her yeah, with yeah. her parents one day and went to lunch, right? You know the story, right? They mm-hmm. went to a fast food restaurant, and uh, people came in and were robbing the place. And uh, some shooting took place, and Dad, uh, Dad was like 70, something like that, right? But 
former Marine, right? Mm. And when one of the bad guys was reloading, Dad went after him to disarm him, and the guy reloaded before Dad got there, and Dad took one to the head. Right? So, but the point of this is, with all this training and this police officer, you know, should always conceal carry, except for that day. Wow. That day, because Mom wasn't a big fan of guns, she left her weapon in the vehicle. And the day she needed her weapon, she chose not to because mom would have been uncomfortable. Now mom's dead because mom broke away from the daughter, ran to her dead husband to cradle him in her arms, and the bad guy walked over and put one in her head. So what's worse than uncomfortable? Yeah. You're not dead and it's not, you know, you're not, it's not going to kill you, then you can put up with that. And we're all training and needed to. So if you can't, you know, here's this perseverance and enduring thing. If you can't put up with somebody being mad at you, you can't put up with somebody being uncomfortable, you can't put up with discomfort. You can't put up with somebody making fun of you or whatever, right, without becoming angry or uh, shutting down or doing, just letting, th- letting them do whatever they want because you don't want to have to hear it or whatever. That's not perseverance. That's not endurance. That's not ninja-like. That's, uh, well, you know what that is. Right. So, anyway. Yeah, you know, and I think this these when these <laughs> things happen as well, you know, they really highlight, um, for me anyway, I see, you know, how r- rare it is for people to make the choice of being personally responsible. Most of, you know, people have this sense of their security, this is something that's handled, and they don't ever think that, you know, maybe it's my own personal responsibility to know these things, be prepared, and get some training, and how few of us actually make that kind of step and commit to doing that. Uh, and then these mm-hmm. things happen, and it always, you know, brings it to the forefront, or you, you watch some of these videos that came out of this Manchester uh, event, and you just see the panic of, of people running and think, you know, how many of these people came here with just total, total ignorance to there being any kind of security issue at all or that something could happen, uh, you know, versus maybe the very few that were there that had had taken it upon themselves and have the personal responsibility that I'm I'm when everything fails, I'm I'm responsible for my own safety. You know, it takes how long for the emergency services to arrive and uh, all of those well, things. And the very fact that people started talking about, you know, how could this happen? There was security. Where was security? What was security doing? Security can't protect you. They can protect the group at large. They can protect the venue. They can do their best at filtering things out. But you you hit it, right? We are Mm -hmm. ultimately all responsible for our own safety, right, to rely on the police to protect you, even if it was possible, right? The average response time in this country from emergency call to the police being dispatched, right, to them actually showing up is eight minutes, right? An attack is over in two to ten seconds, two minutes on the outside, right? So unless it's a long-duration standoff kind of thing, which are very, very rare, right, the attack is over very, very quickly, right? So the police can't protect you, right? And if they're on the scene in a situation like Manchester, they're getting blown up too, right? So, you know, this is just a false sense of security 
but what it is is an abdication of personal responsibility. And you mentioned responsibility a couple of times, and um, you know, responsibility is one of those it's one of those things that that people talk about. You know, you're not very responsible, or I'm responsible, or you know, whatever. People pick a side, but it's mm-hmm. very fragile, and it's very egocentric. And what I mean by that is, we're we're responsible in areas where we think it's important, okay? So people can be financially responsible, Mm. but don't worry about anything about their own personal safety or home security or anything like that. So in that part of their lives, they're completely irresponsible. Some people are training and learning all about self-defense, and they're going to protect theirs and all that, but they don't know where the next meal is coming from or the next paycheck is coming from or whatever, so they're sure. not financially responsible or they're not responsible for their family's well-being or whatever. So they're busy training to protect what? You know, so and we could name a whole bunch of other areas of our lives where we're responsible here, but we've got nothing going on over there. So, right. you know, um, you know, and it's, it's a hard lesson to hear. Right. Um, some people might say, well, I'd rather be trained and have nothing and you know be able to survive than to be one of these sheep that run around and never think it's going to happen to them, and then it does, and then they panic. Okay, fair enough, okay? But how often throughout our days are we under attack, right? And if it's every day, may I suggest that you move, right? So, um, you know, so that's not the case, right? Um, And I know, you know, people will step up, oh, it's not as easy as you, yes, it is. It, It is absolutely, it is absolutely easy. Okay. It is what you think it is, and then you reinforce your own thoughts. So, um, you know, but again, responsibility is one of those things, right? So, yeah. um, you know, how, how do you handle that? But it's not just a I'm a responsible person or I'm an irresponsible person. It's not that black and white. We have these areas of our lives, and we are either vigilant uh, or vigilant, I'm sorry, we're either vigilant or we are uh, aware and prepared in those areas or we're not, right? We either leave the windows open or we've got security going on, right? And that includes our own personal makeup, right, um, where, you know, people that have a lot of problems with feeling like they're being yanked around by life or by other people or whatever, it's because they haven't established paradigms. They haven't established borders and gateways that, you know, they're very clear about who they are, what they stand for, and things like that. So people can move in and out of that uh, that area at will and put them into positions where they're constantly on the defensive or they're constantly trying to adapt and, and, and shift and all that when, you know, it would just be easier if you just were just very clear. Can that come yeah. across as, as arrogant or being an ass or being controlling or whatever? Yeah, I guess so. Right, but not to other people who get that. Right, because right. my wife feels very, very safe. My children feel very, very safe when I'm around. Uh, my my two youngest stepkids, not a big fan of their stepdad, right? Because mm. uh, there are too many rules, kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. But my stepdaughter, the a uh, couple of weeks ago, she said, you know, we may not always get along, but if if I'm ever worried, if I'm ever afraid, if somebody ever does something to me, you're the one I know I can go to, and I'll be okay. So I'm cool with that. Yeah. You know, she'll like me when she's a grown-up and has kids and understands other things as well. But, um, you know, so it's just you either 
getting getting something taken care of, or you're not. So yeah. Anyway, I don't mean well beat this to death. We do we do have some time yet in in today's program, and and we kind of said we would we promised Robert we'd get to his second question. He had sent in a couple questions through the the Facebook page for the the, the Kudin Facebook page, and uh, right. we addressed his first question. Uh, last week, but uh, this week we, we said we'd get to his second question, which involves actual uh, taijutsu technique. He's asking uh, about what he believes to be something called a tobikiri or giri. He says involves a jumping kick with both feet to the stomach area, followed by a back roll. And he was wondering how others feel about how practical that technique is on the street. He says it doesn't seem like it would or it, it does seem like it would take an opponent by surprise, and it's unusual, uh, but he's never seen any of the, he says, old-time instructors like um, Hayes and Hoban, he mentions, that uh, he's never seen them do it. Uh, and I, I, he said, I didn't find out about this till he trained in a different uh, a different uh, art of taijutsu. And um, right. so he was asking about that, and, and so curious to get, get your feedback on it. Uh, I believe I yeah, know. Yeah, that's funny because uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I just I said I believe I I have seen this or or know of it. So perhaps he just he hasn't. Well, we've maybe yeah, hit we've that class or something. Show. But yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got wave masters and stuff. So we start people with you know kicking and leaping, and then eventually you have to put this stuff together, kind of like shuriken throwing and rolling, mm-hmm. or punching and kicking uh, going into or coming out of a roll or whatever. Eventually, you need to get to a point where you can put these things together because. You may need to, and it actually goes along with the requirements for Nidan in our curriculum, which matches up to what, 8th, ninth Don in Japan, according to Hatsumi Sensei, um, that you're able to string your basics together in an unbroken flow against somebody throwing whatever they want or in a, in a you know, very dynamic, chaotic uh, situation. So we'll do that, and then we'll combine um, leaping with a single kick and then leaping up with a double kick, and as you land, uh, you're either landing on balance, or if your balance breaks, then you roll. So it's not a given that you roll. If it's being taught as a given that you roll, it's because whoever's teaching it either assumes that you won't have your balance when you land, or um, you'll, you know, whatever. It's, it's, yeah. Nobody can do it right, or whatever. Right. right. So the surprising thing for me, and, and of course, you know, we're decades into, you know, beyond where this art was introduced to uh, the Western world, right, to uh, to us, right? Um, I started training uh, 1980, 1981, so um, I wasn't first generation. I think I'm second generation under Hayes, uh, at least when I started, right? Um, so we did things like this, um, and uh, I've done this with a couple of other instructors. Uh, one that actually went from Bujinkan to Jinenkan because he was – a personal student, Manaka Sensei, when he when he moved, uh, and we worked on this stuff in, in his seminars and all that. Not just because it's on the scrolls, but because you know it's an answer to a viable attack. Um, uh, but uh, the surprising thing for me, especially with quote unquote old timers not teaching it, is this stuff was introduced way back. Right, uh, this is on the first two videos that were put out in English by Hatsumi Sensei. Togakureru uh, Nimpo number one and number two, and I, I, there's other mm. names for them. And I think somebody pirated them and put them on YouTube, so you can absolutely find them. Uh, so there's things in there with the leaping in, uh, and then with the uh, the quest videos. I have no idea what we're, what number we're up to, 
But Quest Video, I think it's number one. And if it's not number one, it's within the first three, was on Kotoryu. Okay? Hmm. And um, uh, I think it's the Kotoryu one. Uh, there's a, there's a, a section in there on striking, right? So they've got this hay or straw and, and a sheet wrapped around a big tree, and they're doing striking, right? And so this was put out in the mid to late 80s, okay? And there's there right as a part of that striking thing, which you know if it's there, we should be doing it. So there's there's the uh, sanuch, the triple striking being demonstrated. There's uh, obviously one one and two uh, two strikes combinations, but there's also the leaping one kick, double kick kind of thing. Um, and there's even a description there by Hatsumi Sensei as to why it would be done. Okay, one, it's a surprise method, right? Um, the reason we do a lot of the things that we do is because no one else does that, right? You don't want to do the same things that the other that your opponent is used to seeing. If he's used to seeing it, he's either dealt with it or he's seen it and has an idea about how it works or that you might throw it because that's what everybody does, and he's prepared for it, okay? Even if you surprise him like the tricky teenager, he's still seen it, right? So you know, it better shut him down. So, and the, and the reality is that most people are used to fighting two-dimensionally. So that means they're used to moving front, back, or side, side, okay? They're not used to seeing somebody drop straight to the ground or jump straight up, which would be a third dimension, right? <clears throat> so if this guy's moving in on me and he, you know, gets to that point where I can reach and I suddenly leap up and there are feet, coming at his face, chest, gut, whatever, it's a huge thing. And then on the way down, I can do a finishing move with a with a stow or an elbow or whatever. Even after I land, I can hit, okay? So the rolling away, right, can actually come after dropping down, right? And what I do in that moment when I'm coming down is really going to depend on what my kick did to him, Okay. So I have to learn to put these things in combinations and, and pay attention to what's going on. But the primary thing that I see this for is a tricky attack to the legs, okay? So, and it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, somebody, we're in 21st century America, we are, right? Or Australia or whatever you are, right? It doesn't have to be um, a, um, uh, a sword attack or whatever, right? Uh doesn't even have to be a clubbing or anything like that, right? There's a lot of these people that have learned to do sweeps, right? They're, they've got longer legs or whatever. They've been in Taekwondo. They can be going for your legs. Uh, let's let's remove the kick for the moment, okay? What about, you know, something suddenly coming at your legs? Let's put us back in Manchester again, okay? Or let's put us into a situation where, uh, who knows, you know, we're in, a, we're in an area where uh, maybe we're out, we're out ice skating. Right or uh, where it's it's winter time and there's there's something that happens and something or somebody is just sliding across the ground right at your legs. Okay, so can you leap up? Right, what the leaping and the kicking do, and what a lot of students find is that the leaping kicking combination actually makes your kicking better because. Most people, whether they mean to or not, lean or pitch when they kick, okay? And when you leap, 
if you move your legs the way most people move their legs when they're kicking from the ground, you know, when they're standing normally on the ground, one, the kick won't work, won't have any power to it, and two, you will throw your body either face first forward or back towards your head so when you land, you're screwed. Okay, hmm. so it actually makes your kicking better, so that when you're standing on the ground, you're moving and you're using different a different set of muscles, so that you don't tell, right? You don't, uh, you don't. Uh, uh, what's it called? My, my brain's not working at the moment. You don't um, telegraph your, hmm. your 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 intent, right? So, but just something coming at your legs, right, is, is a good place to start. Um, but just as a as a surprise tactic, don't discard or don't uh, you know think about these things where um, you can't. Another application. There's a couple of kata. Um, at the moment, I can't remember which scroll they're off of, but I can picture Hudson Sensei doing it, uh, and then somebody else doing a variation of it. Uh, where there's some kata where this leap, with or without the kick, is a counter to certain types of throws where this, you know, the guy shifts in, he has you off balance, and he moves in to do the throw, and at the moment he goes to sweep your legs or check your legs for the throw, you leap up, which simultaneously clears you from the sweep and actually rights your body again. So when you come down, you can deliver this shot that puts him down on the ground. Hmm. Um, so, again, you know, in, in, in the first stage of training, and then, see, this is really where a problem comes in with, a lot of people's training, especially if all they've done is, is seminars or they train with somebody who trained with somebody who, uh, you know, went to Japan or whatever um, or went to seminars, what ends up happening is classes end, end up being more like seminar-style training than, uh, you know, very structured, learn this before you learn this, before you learn this. Yeah. So, you know, white belts or green belts or whatever end up going to classes that, and Hatsumi Sensei even says, you know, in this class, I'm talking to the 10th to 15th dons. So if you're below that, you know, good luck or try your best <laughs> or whatever, and then find a teacher that can help you get to this point, right? But yeah. it's cool stuff, right? So they want to do that that way. Why do I have to wait until I'm a 10th to 15th don? I can do that now. Yeah, no, you can't. Okay? Because there's so much that you're missing. Okay? So. But the first level of training, the first transmission, and the three, there are three, three transmission levels for every single kata, every single scroll, whatever, okay? The first transmission level, there's no questions asked, and this is from a traditionally Japanese way of looking at things. There are no questions asked about when would I use this, against what kind of an attack, against what kind of an attacker, you know, its validity, whatever. You don't ask anything like that because none of those things matter until you can do it. If you can't yeah. do it, then it doesn't matter who it would be used against. Okay? So the first goal and the first transmission of training is to be able to copy your teacher. Whatever they show, whatever they teach, copy it. Be able to do it that way. Okay? So uh, that's it. Right? That's all there is. Um, let me just check something here because we had, a, we had somebody live on and... Um, Perhaps it was just a work thing. I just wanted to make sure the call's still running. Okay, good. We're still good. Okay, so um, anyway, does that, does that hopefully that helps, uh, Robert, yeah. anybody else, right? So do uh, you have anything else to toss on that, or do you have any uh, I just, you know, kind of what you alluded to as well, I kind of like this 
leap uh, as it is, you know, the kind of start of the, what he's talking about here is, uh, and, and the kick that can follow is something, you know, in today's environment where uh, if you do find yourself, as he mentions, on the street and dealing with an attack, uh, I think a lot of those tend to come from folks who are doing this MMA style training, which a lot of it is shoot in for the legs, shoot in for a takedown. Absolutely. And this is Absolutely. great because... Don't think stuff. about a, a leap up and a because I think yeah. his his mention was leaping up and kicking to the stomach, right? Right. If one of these shoot fighters comes in to wrap around my waist and to hook my legs, yeah, his head is at stomach level, right? So don't think of it as a as a, a kick to the stomach. It's a kick to whatever's right there. So this guy comes shooting in, absolutely jump straight up and pop him right in the crown of his head, yeah, or whatever's right there, and you change the scenario dramatically. Because right? yeah. that's the last thing he expected, right? So, and I think the, the uh, role part of it is definitely going to be subjective to the situation because if you've got an environment where you have the space to be able to, you know, follow that with a role, if you even need to right. uh, roll, then okay. But, you know, you could find yourself in very close quarters where you're not well, rolling anywhere because you're in a hallway. <laughs> you know, we have so. to remember that the plan, the goal – is to execute the technique and land on your feet so you can maneuver, right? Yeah. So that you can you can move again, you can continue to go. The rolling is a bailout for when you lose your balance. Yeah. So you may be doing the land and roll a lot, but we're always trying to jump, kick, and land, right? So we don't want to just assume that it's this thing, right? Because that's the way we learned it. And, you know, this is not a Robert thing. This is, this is for everybody because we have to remember that everybody assumes that the training, the, the real training, the right way to do it is the way that they encountered it, the way the training was being done when they encountered it. Okay. So depending on which Shidoshi or Shihan you bump into, they're going to have different things about, oh, that's wrong over there or that's that old, you know, good old boy training. That's that old school stuff. That's not the way it's done. This is the way it's done. Um, I beg to differ because, you know, I, I've been around since, like I said, 80, 81, and I've watched the training change. And then I've watched groups of people create factions and yeah. splinter groups, all believing they're doing the things the right way. But what it, you can trace that all back to the person who they all started training with who got involved at where? Early 80s, mid 80s, late 80s, early 90s, mid, because mm -hmm. this stuff keeps changing, right? Right. So, and then, you know, uh, he, he brought up a good point that he doesn't see the old timers doing this kind of thing. But often, you know, a lot of these people are training in very, very small areas, or maybe they're always, uh, you know, training with uh, beginners, or yeah. that's just not something they like doing or want to do. So, therefore, you get cheated out of training because they don't want to do it. Right. Yeah. Or they don't want to practice that kind of thing. And so this this is in the same category of techniques um, as the Togakure techniques where you do at the end of every move, at the end of every technique, you roll to a blind spot or you roll behind cover and disappear. Right. Yeah. So you need to train that way as well, because you may be on the street. This guy goes for a weapon and you're able to stall him enough but not enough to control him. You hit him, and it slows him down or it knocks him away from you, and you lose control of the of the bubble, and you bail out and roll 
between two parked cars or whatever, because the point is that you either uh, disappear completely where you're gone, right, or you get cover between you and him because he is going to draw that weapon, right? Yeah. So that's part of the training as well, right? Mm-hmm. So how many people, uh, you know, are doing their techniques or at least practicing them sometimes when or where where they throw the, the, the bad guy or they drop him to the ground or whatever, and then they roll away, Yeah. right? I don't know. I can't answer that. Right. Right? I just know that I make sure that my guys are really good at rolling. I'm really good at leaping, really good at break falls, right? Um, because it's not only on my syllabus, it's on, it's in the Tenshi Jin Uraka no Maki, and it's, it's important, right? Um, yeah. So, and, and I would say, we're going to have to note it. One little last thing, I think, to Robert here, too, uh, kind of along the lines of rolling. Uh, if, if you're going to think of this technique or use on the street, practice rolling on the street. Uh, it's a lot different than rolling on the, Dojo floor, and yeah, uh, and well, we and we graduate people from mats very, very quickly yeah. because yeah. Uh, you're not going to be able to pull out your go-go gadget mats and convince him to give up his real knife so you could give him a rubber or wooden or plastic knife and yeah, know, um, and make sure you're training in you know real clothes and all that, um, not just the martial arts uniform or not just what you usually wear for training because you you know all these things provide you with information about what's appropriate and inappropriate with all these variables in a given situation. So uh, make sure that your training, you know, if your environment includes, uh, you know, you may find yourself someplace where there's uh, loose gravel, then get out and train on loose gravel. Try the leaping on loose gravel. Uh, If you live near the beach or, you know, you frequent the pool and there's sand and stuff like that, then make sure you train in areas like that. If you are, you know, if you're, you could be attacked near your house, right? If you got a big yard or even a small yard, right? You could be out there. That's probably not as smooth and even as the dojo floor. So make sure you're training on, on uneven terrain. Yeah. Make sure you're training uh, in or near curbs or staircases because you may be in a position where you have to step up or down as you back up into Ichimonji or into some other kamai, Right. So can you keep your torso level and plumb while your legs are actually at different levels, right? right? So just different things that better and better prepare you for adapting and uh, and surviving in, you know, in bad, in worst-case scenarios. So, I, like, you know, we, uh, we've kind of, we're running towards the end of our time, but I do see, it yeah. uh, looks like Joshua's back on this call, and I do want to give a little is. moment here if, uh, if there's some Q&A or anybody else who's on the call that, uh, on the show here that, that hasn't signed in, um, you know, that we have a chance to do a little open Q&A, so. Um, yeah, let me just open things up and unmute things. So, um, you know, any questions or comments about anything that Derek and I have been chatting about for the last hour, uh, now be the time to ask. And some Hi, guys. This just is Josh because they're working. Oh, there you are. Hey, Josh. Hi, Joshua. Hey. Hey, how are you? Um, I just want to say great show. Uh, you know, I, I come from a... Uh, taekwondo, Tengsudo background, and we would always wonder uh, why all the emphasis on the jump kicks, um, because they're not necessarily the most practical things. But um, you know, we were always told that uh, 
in many ways, this is not necessarily its training and its coordination that you're working on. As I remember for my uh, black belt test, there was a thing that everybody had trouble with, which uh, was to, you know, start and then run and then do a jump round kick or whatever. Totally impractical. Mm -hmm. But the exercise of doing it and training it and doing it over and over again is just helpful for, you know, whatever situation you might be in, just general kind of uh, coordination between, you know, your what you think you can do and uh, what your legs actually do. So I think that is no, that exercise in itself can be quite helpful. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Um, one of my teachers used to say that, um, you know, he doesn't disregard and never disregard anything that the teacher showed because uh, you never know when you might need what. And if you don't put it in, it's not going to come out, right? So um, now, that being said, the practicality of a lot of those kicks that are done uh, actually goes back historically to battlefield kind of things. And if we can imagine a, a, an opponent on horseback and you are actually lifting yourself up to kick this person off of horseback, right, or to attack them in that case, then you don't have the same kind of threat level as you would have if you tried to kick somebody in the head on the street that had a knife. You're not exposing anything because the, the horse itself or the obstacle is providing cover, and you're actually kicking over cover. So it's the same thing with kicking somebody with one of these things where you're jumping straight up, and both kicks, the, the both legs go out in front of you, so you're not sideways or anything like a Taekwondo kind of situation. But what happens is, the space and or your proximity to the to the opponent actually removes the danger, right? Because you're you're too close or you're in a position where there's like I said, this cover. Okay. So I'm not beyond throwing like a lateral shin kick over a I don't know, a, a workman's sawhorse or uh, you know, if I'm uh if I'm uh, in a position where I'm bringing down one attacker and, uh, you know, his friend's moving in on me, um, this guy's not going to be able to to get at certain parts of my body or my legs or my groin or whatever because I, I kicked high. I'm kicking high because I'm kicking over something, not because that's my style, right? And I'm not worried about, you know, exposing things because I'm really not. You know, there's a, there's an obstacle in the way. So I get the practicality, impracticality kind of thing because you're probably not going to be attacking somebody on the street um, with a running jump kick kind of thing. And besides that, he's going to see you coming. But if I were initiating an attack or I was in an army that was running onto a battlefield and taking out, you know, some of these mounted uh, soldiers, that's that's where a lot of this stuff came from. So... The same thing with, uh, you know, when somebody draws a weapon, um, you know, if, if I were in, um, if I were on a battlefield and he's going to draw, you know, the, the fashionable or the conventional thing is to draw and go for this guy's torso or to go for his head um, with this draw and cut kind of thing, right? So in that case, we have these body drops and getting below things or moving forward and getting inside. But what if he goes for your legs, right? Um and I, I know Eric's worked with this a bunch of years ago. Uh, there was a uh, there was this whole attack type that was coming actually from California. Way to go, Eric! I'm going to hold you responsible for the entire state. It's my fault. Anyway, uh, what was ha what was happening was the, this gang 
were ripping off people at, um, in uh, uh, truck stops, rest stops, right, rest areas. So what they would do was they would wait until somebody went into a into a uh, stall, and they'd have a knife. And what they would do was wait until they saw the pants drop, and then they would kick in the door and slash at the person's legs and then rob them from there, okay? So what we actually did, we didn't train with our pants down, but we actually tied belts around our lower legs like our pants would be if we were in that situation and then worked on ways to um, save our legs from attacks like that because you can't drop back into big uh, come eye or, or anything like that. So we practiced a little uh, shuffling foot change kind of position so that they're actually missing as they come through. Uh, and we actually practiced that whole leaping thing where you can't drop down before you jump up because you're going to get tagged. Right? So, um, again, you never know what you're going to need when you need it. So with some of these things, I'm just a big fan of putting them in because – like like my teacher said, if you don't put them in, they're not going to come out. So, and what's the harm, right? What's the harm? Okay. Uh, it's kind of like Einstein's take on prayer, right? Einstein was a scientist, and most people took him as an atheist or whatever, but he said, what's the harm, right? If I pray and, you know, there there is no heaven, right? If I pray and there is heaven, great. If I pray and there is no heaven, well, what's the harm, right? Because I don't know which is which is which for sure. We have beliefs and we have faith, but so he chose to be a scientist and pray as well because the upside was better than the downside of not doing it in his mind, right? And since he was like one of the smartest people that ever lived, um, you know, who am I to argue? So, uh, but anyway, just uh, just as my take on this, I gave you a couple of things to think about for reasons to do it um, as far as practical on the street kind of things, everything from surprise. To going over something and all that, but at the same time, uh, as Eric pointed out, if you don't put it in, it's not going to come out. And as Josh mentioned as well, it all contributes to body coordination. Like I said, it'll it'll make your kicking better because if you if you kick um, incorrectly with pitching and leaning and all that, and you try to do this, yeah, rolling will be the least of your concerns uh, on landing. <laughs> <on ramping. laughs> Well, those were some really great, uh, great comments, and uh, thanks so much, uh, Joshua, for joining in and 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 uh, being on the program. Really appreciate it. Yeah, and I think um, like next week you you might not be around, you. right? You might have something coming up, but uh, I uh, think I have a guest uh, uh, lined up for next week, so uh, I'm sure you'll show up somehow. You'll you'll make your presence known. <laughs> uh, but either way, so it just might be, be me, great. and uh, I, have a, I have a friend who's a uh, veteran as well and a, and a security guy actually from Ireland uh, that will be joining me uh, as well as long as we can work it out he'll be on the call next week and um, that'll be cool we'll, we're going to talk about uh, some really important stuff as usual and we'll have fun and make fun of people to do dumb things in training and stuff like that too so anyway, <laughs> it'll be good see you'll hardly be missed and if you decide to bail I'll have a replacement that, that's not true anyway <laughs> Oh, all right. So, well, we didn't joke around nearly enough during this call or during this uh, show. So, yes, I'm making anyway. notes right now. More jokes, more jokes. Yeah, getting too serious, too serious. <laughs> well, anyway, and Josh, thanks for being week. on the call. Yeah, and uh, Thank you. Robert, I hope that that helped. I, I should, I hope it helped everybody. Um, 
But, uh, if you don't know what we're talking about, just do just do some YouTube searches. You don't need to train with teachers, right? There's plenty of videos out there on YouTube, and you can believe them all, right? So uh, have at it. Okay. So there's that, right? <laughs> so okay, so uh, I think we're done then, right? We're going to wrap this up next week. Yeah, stay safe, Until everyone. Until next week. All right, same ninja channel, same ninja what whatever. <laughs> For listening to Kuden, the podcast for self-defense and martial arts news, interviews, techniques, and history. For more information on upcoming martial arts seminars, camps, and classes with Shihan Miller, or to submit a question for discussion topic to the show, visit warrior-concepts-online.com. <laughs>